Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! Much like Abram, uh, we are on a journey, and much like Abram, we're going to fall on our faces and not always do it great, and sometimes just total failure, and then total, sometimes we're going to be up and to the right, and we're going to be doing really well in life and our faith. So this is following the journey of Abram, and there's a lot to learn from him. But to put all this in context, I want to start with a question today. So what does it look like for you to believe the impossible? Right? So think about that. Like, I don't know, because that's kind of what we're getting at today. I don't know what your impossible is. Abram's impossible was the promise that it was going to be fulfilled, right? And we'll look at the promise today. But what is your impossible? And what does it look like for you to put your faith and say, Lord, I know that you're going to do this. I'm here. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. And I'm not even really sure if there is where I'm supposed to go, but I'm going to trust you with the unknown of the future. It's tough. Because Abram sets the standard in the Bible for his faith and for our faith. Because he's mentioned almost 300 times throughout the Bible because of the faith that he had. So he's a guy worth knowing and understanding. And getting to like, see that journey, I think, is really healthy for us. Because following God, it can be really difficult. Especially if you work and live in an environment where believing in the impossible is the foundation of your faith as a Christian, and you're ridiculed for it. I talk to people all the time that are just ridiculed, like, oh, you're a Christian, you believe in fairy tales, that's nice, right? And they just open persecution. And so it's like, so that we believe in a God who became a man, and that man then died, and not only died, but good news, came back, right? And like Brittany prayed for, why did he come back? To pay for our sins. It's like, these are other, literally, otherworldly things. These are literally impossible things that are happening. And so we're putting our faith in something, first and foremost, that's really hard to believe. It's like, Wow. But then to trust God with the unknown, that's another thing altogether. But we're going to see today partly why Abraham, or Abraham, uh, who, who becomes to know, be known as, is going to be that marker for faith for generations. So the question I want to start with, just because this is our, our guiding question, our question to consider for the series, is how is your faith in God growing in your journey of life? I have learned over the years the importance of very small steps. Right? Very small steps. They say it takes 10,000 hours to be uh, excellent at anything. Right? So consider your faith. There's a lot of really small steps that nobody's ever going to see that this is what your life journey looks like with God. And so how is yours doing right now? Like that's a good personal question to make this journey of Abram personal for us. Now to put this in the chronological order, because I always like to fill in the details around what I'm talking about day of. And so we started with Abram and his journey back Genesis 12. He gets the promise. He trusts God. He leaves. He goes north, right? And then he goes back south, west again. And he, now he's like, you know, into Egypt. And the first chance that Abram gets to really step into the promise that God has given him, right? He's out. Awesome. That's cool. But then all of a sudden he runs into a little bit of uh, a fearful situation, I guess we'll call it for him. So what does he do? He sacrifices his wife to Pharaoh. He's like, all right, so here's what I need you to do, Sarai. I might get killed if I know you're my wife, so I'm going to tell you, them that you're my sister, and then now, oh, you're going to be part of Pharaoh's harem. 
but I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to get rich out of it. It's like, so he really falls flat on his face. Horrible father, horrible husband, you know, future father, horrible husband. It's like, this guy fails terribly. But then the next week, he said, well, where did his journey take him? Well, now he got kicked out, and he's headed back north again. And so now we see him offering to Job, his nephew, the best possible land. He just says, hey, not Job, Lot. He says, uh, <laughs> he says, I was like, Job. He says to him, look, I trust God so much that I'll let you have the best. And even if I don't have the best, I know God's going to take care of me because he said he would. Because there's a lot of trust that you have to have to do something like that. So he does that. So I wonder, again, what happened to him? That must have stung him pretty bad, what he did to his wife. And now all of a sudden he's going to protect Lot because last week, not only was he generous giving him the best land, but now he's going to go after Lot, who's been kidnapped. And Joey did a great job, as a side note, last week. If you weren't here to see Joey, like, make sure you watch that. He did a great job of bringing that to us. And what Joey showed us, though, is that there's this king, Keterleomer, or Big C, as Joey called him. And this guy was kind of like the big bull of the area. And the king of Sodom and his buddies, they try to go to war against Keterleomer, and they lose. Big C is Big C for a reason, right? And so in the midst of all that regional warfare, his nephew Lot, Abram's nephew Lot, gets kidnapped. So Abram, again, self-sacrificing, he has to go after, and uh, that's what we named her, Joey did last week, Saving Private Lot, because he has to go after his nephew and rescue him from this king. He does. Brings him back. So we see Abram, even though he failed so terribly, now all of a sudden he's protecting his family, he's going after his family, his generosity, he's doing really well, and so his story is starting to take off a lot. But much like our journey, it's not going to just keep going up and to the right always. Right? There's a lot to learn from this guy, Abram. Because today, though, we're still going to see, not necessarily that he's falling or failing, but he's faltering a little bit. So God's made these promises. He's actually seen God do some pretty cool things. And yet today, in a very human way, he's going to struggle with doubt. And here's what I love. A lot of people I know, they're feeling, uh, they have communicated to me that they feel almost shameful when they have doubts. They feel maybe like they're not allowed to have doubts. And if they do, they're a bad Christian or maybe not even a Christian at all. And it's like, they feel like they can't struggle with that. The problem is, if you actually read the Bible, you'll see pretty much everybody struggles with this. Like, any major character struggles with either failure or doubt or doubt and then failure. And it's like, it's all very part of the human story. In this chapter that we're going to read, I would love for you just to remember chapter 15 of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 15 is a chapter where we get an intimate view of God we get a different view of him in this relationship with humans because what he does with Abram is so caring. He really slows the story down and he wrestles with Abraham and not for the last time with his doubts and with his like, being unsure of the situation. And so I love this, this view we have of their relationship and what that says about God. And I also love that with what Joey did last week is he took like this this story that we're, we're following in Abram, and he made it very real for us. Because Joey was really, really vulnerable when he shared that he was upset with God and angry with God because Joey's plan wasn't working. Joey had always loved football, but he'd taken several years off. And when he came back his senior year, he just thought, man, they're going to roll out the red carpet for me when I go back. And when there was no red carpet, and there was no position on the team, and there was no sight in the future for just a spot at all, he kept thinking, well, what, what's going on? Like, I'm crushing it in practice. I'm doing everything that I should be. I'm hardworking. 
and he wasn't given the time of day. So he started to get angry with God. He started to doubt God. And then all of a sudden, through his community that he has around him, they begin to ask him those questions. Like, well, what's God doing then? Like, can you step back from that and say, well, what, what is God doing in my life? Maybe you're looking at this the wrong way. And so Joey had to step back and reassess. Like, oh, maybe I am looking at this the wrong way. And then he did. And then he said, oh, there, there must be something else God's doing. So if you didn't hear the end of that story, go back and watch that sermon. I'll let him share that. But what God showed him at the end, when all he had, was focused on was just playing time. Right? So that was really humble of him, I think, to share that. So that was cool. So thanks, Joey. All right. And then, so this Sunday, though, Genesis 15. Like I said, uh, sermon today, the promise that changed everything. Now, this promise is a reaffirmation of Genesis 12. It's already been said to him, but God, in a really unique way, is going to reaffirm the promise. And there's a lot that happens in this chapter, because at the latter half of this chapter, something really strange happens that I always, even before this week, I never really 100% understood. But it was one of those things, like, you read, and you're like, oh, that's really weird. Anyway, next verse, you know, and you just kind of keep going. And it just kind of that way a long time for me. And I said, well, there must be a meaning, but I never looked into it. So there's a lot that goes on, but... Here's the question I w- I'm going to keep coming back to, and I try to make this personal for you. What happens when God calls you to trust Him with the impossible? So what happens for you personally when God calls you to trust Him with the impossible? Now, I don't know what your impossible is. Abram's, again, like I said, is the promise, but what's your impossible? What's your, I don't even know how to get to there. I don't have answers for that. I don't really see, God, how you could even work this out this problem I'm facing, this fear I have, this hurt from my past, right? Because this is, again, it could be your job, it could be your family, wife, kids, some kind of relationship, it could be our country, it could be the world, it could be whatever. There's a lot of things that, that could fall into this, like this is never going to work. So I'd love for you to this morning just to be thinking about that. What's your impossible? Right now, to understand this chapter too, you also need to understand something that may seem a little dry, I guess, um, but it's really important for the whole Bible, particularly what's going to happen today. So I want to introduce you to a covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is what we see today. And basically what that says is that he's going to be the first Jewish person. So if you didn't know who the Jews started with, that's Abraham. He's the first one. But he's a many of gen- like many of many generations of them. That's part of the promise. He's also going to have land that his inhabitants are going to live in. And then there's the material blessing that will come with that and the protection. But the Abrahamic covenant is just one of many covenants. And covenant is not a word that we use much anymore. But essentially, it's an agreement between two parties. Those parties could be equal. They could be unequal. They could be uh, one person has to do everything or both people have to do things. There's a lot of things, but they define a lot of the Bible. And essentially, by definition, a covenant is a relationship. But it's not merely a mutual acquaintance between two people or parties. Now, again, those parties could be equal or they could be unequal. As in, like, I'm way more powerful than you, and I'm going to do this, right? That's, that's a different kind than, like, we're equal and we're going to do this together. So, but what is required is it's going to be a commitment to responsibility and action. So what we see today is God's going to hold himself responsibility for a covenant that he's making, a contract, a promise that he's making to Abraham. Like, that's what, again, Abram, I'm going to keep going back and forth, I apologize. But this is a commitment that God is going to make. And if there's two kinds that you see frame the Old Testament, one is a unilateral covenant, which we're going to see in Abraham repeated today. And then later in Exodus 20, and then really the law, you're going to see the bilateral covenant. That's God saying, okay, I'll do this, but you guys have to do this. 
what he's going to say to Abram today is, look, I'm going to do this, and you don't have to do anything. Like, I'm going to make all of this happen. I'm going to work this out. Now, well, why is that important? Well, because the, 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 these covenants ideas, this is what frames the Bible. So it's no accident that we have the New Testament and the Old Testament. Because testament means covenant. So it's essentially saying there was the Old Covenant, and now is there, there's the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, specifically, about 700 years before Jesus, says there's going to be a new covenant that gets ushered in. Every Sunday when we do communion, we hold up the cup and we say, and with this blood, he ushers in the new covenant. So Jesus is saying, I'm entering in the New Testament. And so Jeremiah 31 gives us that framework. There's the old contract God had with humanity, and now there's the new contract, the new covenant. And when we become Christians, we therefore are entering into that covenant that God had with Abraham. Right? That we become his children, so to speak. We become part of the family of God. And then so the, the Abraham covenant echoes to the rest of the Bible. Then the Mosaic covenant, like this is the law that frames like how everything works in the Old Testament and even in the New. So these are bigger ideas that help us see, like how does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? Like why is there not just one big Bible? Why do we have a split? Because there's a new covenant. Right? So that's, I just want to start there because that's what you're seeing today work out. Because in the Old Testament, blessings of the covenant are earned by us, right? You have to earn the blessings. But in the New Testament, the blessings of the covenant are earned for us. So that, that would be the big difference between these two covenants, is what to, to access these blessings, right? Jesus did that on our behalf. All right, so let's jump in then to Genesis 15. Uh, after these events, what Joey talked about last week, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says to him, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So he steps into this story. The word of the Lord is a phrase only used twice in Genesis. So he's stepping into this story to reaffirm the promise. And this phrase, do not be afraid, depending on your translation, can be used anywhere between 30 and 70 times in your Bible. Again, it just depends on how your specific translation might work. But if you broaden this out to other things like be of great courage or be courageous or things that are similar like that, now you're talking about in the hundreds. In the hundreds of times, God says all across the Bible, have courage. Don't be afraid. It's like I think God understands where we are as human beings. It's said so much. God understands the frailty and the worries and the fears and the uncertainty that humans have because this life can really stink sometimes. It can be really difficult sometimes. It can be beautiful, certainly. Sometimes, man, it's like, it just feels horrible. And so in the midst of that, when God's saying this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then I love how he says, I am your shield. That's so personal that God would say, I am your shield. So I want you to notice this. God is saying, he's reminding him, hey, look, I've got you. Don't be afraid. I am personally with you. And then notice how everything unfolds after this. Just a direct affirmation from God. But then verse 2, but Abram said, in response to that, it's like, wow, man, look at all, I can trust that. But in response to that, he says, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Like, he genuinely doesn't know what's happening. He genuinely doesn't understand how this promise is going to be fulfilled. Because later in Genesis, we see in chapter 24, Eleazar is in charge of all his stuff, Right? He's not just a servant. He's like the guy that's in charge of everything. And he's thinking, like, I don't have any kids, so what, I'm just going to hand it over to Eleazar? Like, is that, is that the plan here, Lord? I don't understand what you're doing. And he keeps going with this, this 
worry, this doubt. And he says, look, you've given me no offspring, so a son of my household, or a servant, will be my heir. It's like, have you ever been like, all right, Lord, I know that you're going to get me through this, but I don't know how you're going to provide. I don't know how I'm going to pay that bill. I don't know how I'm going to do that or say that. Or I don't know how that relationship can be saved. I don't know how, you know, again, whatever the thing might be. And he just has no clue how this is going to work out. And then so that son of my household phrase gets turned back to him here in a minute. He says, now verse 4, now the word of the Lord, so second time, came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. So that's a weird phrase, but it's a turn of phrase on what Abram just said. Not from your house, but from your body. So this is the essence of faith for Abram. He has to trust that he has no children, and yet God is going to bring this heir through him, through his family, just like he promised. So it's like to step back from that and understand this is why Abram, for 4,000 years, is still talked about. That's why for 4,000 years he still looked to as kind of the, the benchmark for faith because he didn't have any of it in front of him. This was his impossible. So again, circle back to that question. What happens when God calls you to trust him with the impossible? What happens when God calls you to that place? Because that's the tricky place where we're going to live a lot. So then it's like God understands he's not getting it. God understands he's struggling. And I, I, I remind you, this is what I love about this chapter. God steps into the doubt. He steps into the worry and the fear. And he just keeps approaching this from different angles. I'll say it directly to you. I'm going to show you this and remind you this. I'm going to remind you of your past. And then I'm going to do this whole little ceremony that's kind of weird for us in 2024 at the end of this chapter. Like, I'm in four different ways going to approach this promise. And I'm just going to keep being patient with you. And it's not the last time that he's going to do this. And so what does that say for you with your doubt? Go to God with your doubt. Go to God with your worries and your fears. Like God's not going to be like, oh my gosh, they don't trust me, they don't know. It's like, he knows. He knows that we struggle. And I love what this chapter shows in that regard. Because there's a humility of Abram. It's just like an honest doubt. It's not like an arrogant doubt. So he takes him outside, realizing he needs to, he needs to shift gears. Right? And he says, look up at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Again, all right, all right, you're not getting it. Let me, let me shift gears here. Let me show you something different. I've already done this with you in Genesis chapter 13. I showed you the sand, and I said, count the sand if you can. That's your generation. Now he's like, all right, well, instead of looking down, maybe look up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this a different way with you. See all those stars? Like, that's your kids. And when I came in this morning, there were stars everywhere. And I was thinking about this. I'm looking up at the sky, and there are stars everywhere. And it's like, you know, Abram was staring on the other side of the planet 4,000 years ago, and God was trying to get something into his head by looking up at those stars. Trust me, Abram. Trust me, Abram. Well, I don't know. You know, your offspring will be that numerous. And this next verse here, verse 6, echoes across the whole Bible. Abram believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's a hugely powerful verse that has Bible-wide implications that changes everything. This belief that he had is the framework that starts the nation of Israel, but it's also what Jesus would step into and Jesus would promise us. And book, the book of Romans, chapter 3, says this specifically, by faith in Christ, we are made right with God. Righteousness, right standing with God is given to us. It's not something you can do. It's something that's given to you. Again, the new covenant, right? The blessings are done for us and then given to us. 
So it's not something we can do on our own, making ourselves right with God and getting right with who He is and His plan. It's like, this is something that God had to do. Three times in the New Testament, specifically, this is quoted, this verse, just to show the importance of this faith. But, again, He also said to him, Lord did, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. It's like, I know you're worried, I know you're confused, but just remember what I've done. Just like when you're driving in a car, right? Hopefully, don't look at your phone, right? Look at the road, look at the head when you're going, and life is a lot like that, right? Distractions usually can get us in trouble, but when we're seeing trouble ahead, will we glance in that rearview mirror? I think that's what God's telling him. Like, will you glance in that rearview mirror and be like, okay, I got trouble ahead, but man, let me look at my past real quick and remember that God's done something. God's been here. God's gotten me through things before, and I think that's what he's trying to do with Abraham here. He's like, look, this is something that we've, we've walked through. We've done some stuff together. Don't forget your trust. I've brought you out. But in response to that, again, Abram's struggle. Verse 8, Lord God, so Yahweh Adonai, how can I know that I will possess it? It's like, oh, I trust you, but I don't know. How do you live that out, right? Because I would love it if God would just send me messages and be like, hey, Kyle, this is what I'm up to. And he would just shoot me a text. And I could know specifically, all right, cool, this is what's going on. But that's not a world that I live in, right? I don't live in that world. And, I, and yet here's Abram hearing directly from the Lord, and he still struggles, right? He still struggles. So obviously there's going to be that, more of that time in my own life to be like, Lord, I do trust you, but, oh, man, I don't, I don't know how you're going to do this. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament comes from Mark 9, verses 22, or 23 and 24. This is Jesus talking to a guy who desperately needs Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, look, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the Father jumps in and he says, I do believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Man, that is a powerful, powerful prayer. I've learned to pray that a lot. There's a lot going on right now in my life and in our church, and I'm just like, Lord, I don't, like, I think I know what you want to do, and I think I know the direction that you want me to head in this, but I don't know how it's going to happen. So just in the last couple of weeks, I've had to have people speak into my life and say, hey, look, no, if God wants this to happen, he'll show you how to do it. And if he doesn't want you to do it, you don't want to do it anyway, and he'll show you that if you're listening. And it's just like, all right, because I don't know what steps to take next, but Lord, help me in my unbelief. I love this prayer, and how I've turned this into a prayer over the years out of this passage is I just, it's just for me saying, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can, and I don't understand, but I know you do. Like, this is literally a prayer that I've had to pray, like, I just don't, I can't do this, Lord, I, I just can't, but I, I know you can, but I need you to help me in my unbelief, because I don't know where this is going or how I get through this. I don't know how I fix this relationship, I don't know how to, you know, mend what I did, or I don't know about this decision, or whatever. There's been so many things, and it's like, but Lord, I can't, but you can. I don't, but I know you do. You know, that's been a powerful one for me over the years. I want to kind of leaned into a lot. So God is very patient with him. And then we had this awkward scene unfold. And this is the one I was talking about earlier. This is something that for us in 2024, we have no context to understand what is happening in this scene. And for years, I just kind of read right through it. And I was like, well, that's weird, but I guess they're just doing their thing. So what's happening, what we're about to see is a very ancient way of, of finalizing a covenant finalizing a contract between two people. So what they would do, scholars think, is 4,000 years ago, is they would take, sometimes they would take property, 
and they would split it up. Or they would take whatever it is, and if it was physical, and they would split it up into two groups. And then those people that were making the covenant would then walk in between as a symbolic way of saying, we are in this covenant, and this is what's at stake, and then, and then we're in a public way solidifying this thing. And so that's an awkward way to do a covenant or finalize a covenant. But another way in the Old Testament that we see is the book of Ruth. If you're familiar at all with the book of Ruth or the story of Ruth, she's a Moabite, right? So she's like living outside the land of Israel. And this is way later after all this. And so she's going to make her way back in. She's going to follow this Jewish woman, Naomi, back in. And she's going to become a Jew. So she comes back in. But in order to do that, she's got, she's a widow. She's got no way of making a living or surviving then. So she needs this cool guy, Boaz, to come in and step in and say, okay, I will redeem her. I will basically take her as my wife. Because as a family member, distant, that's my role to do this, is so that she's not on her own. So it's a big deal what he does, and it's pretty self-sacrificing. But there's this other guy that technically is supposed to redeem Ruth. But Boaz goes, and he knows this guy's not really going to want to do this, right? He's got a family of his own. He knows what's up. So he goes and tells this guy, and he's like, well, look, you know, you're going to have to do this and this and this. And the guy's like, oh, actually, no, I can't do that. And Boaz is like, okay, cool. I'm going to redeem her. She's going to become my wife. I'm going to take care of her. So when they're done... Now the shoes are coming off. So now they're going to take their sandals off and they're going to exchange sandals, right? And I always thought that's such a weird thing to do. Like, why would you take your shoes off and trade them? Well, again, it's not our culture. It's just something that they did. And this is just one of those weird things that they did to solidify a contract. And so what we're about to read is God doing this with Abraham. He's making a unilateral covenant with him and saying, I'm going to do all of this, and I'm going to hold myself accountable. I'm going to do everything. So I'm going to do this weird little ceremony with you that they would have understood back then to show you. Right? So here's what they do. So God says to him, he's going to, he needs five animals. I want you to bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And it's like, okay, so that's... Interesting. Verse 10. He brought all these to him and then cut them in half. And he laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So I don't know, one on one side, one on the other. So like, what's going on here then exactly with this? Well, again, you have God entering into this covenant. He's giving a tangible picture of what he's doing. And this is a vision, right? But I'm assuming the animals are still real. But he's like, he's having this vision. He's like, okay, God's going to do this for me. And these animals are not just part of this covenant. These animals, and what's going to happen next, which is also kind of weird, are a part of a prophecy that he's going to give him about the future. So there's a lot wrapped up into this. And for years, like I said, I just read right through it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So what happens next is just like, again, he's out here for a long time. The story started when it was nighttime still. Now it's the point where now birds of prey, they're out there long enough with these dead carcasses. The birds of prey are coming down on the carcasses, but Abraham is having to drive them away. Like, picture the reality of that. you got this, like, dead, bloody scene happening there, and Abraham is, like, having this vision, and now, like, birds are coming down, and he's out there, like, what, with his staff, like, chasing the birds away? Like, it's kind of chaotic. What's happening? What's unfolding? So, this gets explained. It's like, okay, what do the animal pieces mean? What's up with the birds showing up? And then if you jump to verse 13... It's explained that this is not just a contract that God is entering into. It's also a prophecy. So he says to Abram, know this for certain. And he gives him a very hard truth about his offspring. He says, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. 
Like, that's really heavy news to hear. Like, oh, here's all these great promises God has made me, but at the same time, he's revealing something about the future that's going to be really hard. So the animal pieces, then, are Israel's offspring, right? It's going to be the nation of Israel. I should say Abram's offspring, the nation of Israel, is going to be oppressed. Well, by who? Well, they're going to be enslaved by these birds that are going to harass Israel, the birds that are going to harass the covenant, and that is going to be Egypt. So he's letting him know that even though the promise is going to be fulfilled, there's going to be this long period of difficulty for his ancestors. It's like, or for his offspring. It's like, and in Exodus 12, that's what we see after the fact, looking back, that it was in fact 430 years that they were in slavery. Now, I, didn't, I, I asked myself why. Why did they have to go into slavery? What did they do? And so I started research, and it was kind of hard to find. And there's a lot of ideas out there. Some are that maybe they rejected God. Maybe they, his, his descendants, maybe they rejected the promise. And maybe they were like, now nah, we're just going to go with Egypt and their gods. And God was like, all right, fine. And he just let them have their consequences. Maybe there's that. Maybe it's because God is, there, there's just, that's life. Right? The Egyptians turned on the family of Joseph. They turned on the nation of Israel, if you read later in the story of Genesis. And they just forgot what God had done through the Israelites in the nation of Israel. And they just began to fear them, so they enslaved them. Maybe that's just a natural consequence of world systems, oppression. Maybe it's because God wanted this to be a, a paradigm shift for them, a framework for them. Because what ends up happening with the nation of Israel? They go into slavery... And today, today, people, this still defines the nation of Israel, their time. Like, Jews will still say us when they talk about this event 4,000 years ago. I remember watching Seinfeld not long ago, and they were making jokes about this event and how, like, you know, this is who they are and this is their shared history, their time in slavery. It's like, man, this is such an identity builder for them. And I wonder, did God do that because of that? Was it yes to all the above? This is the framework and the backdrop for when Jesus comes and he says, look, I'm here to set the captives free. When Jesus came to the Jews first, every single Jew would have been like, yep, they remember that story. It defines who they are. And so there's, I think, a lot to this, but God is letting him know this difficulty is coming. My plan is going to unfold, but it's not always going to be easy. So he says in verse 14, however, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. That's specifically fulfilled again also in Exodus 12. But you, right, that's heavy, but you, he says, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. That happens in Genesis 25. So he says, in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the, or iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's like a weird side note. Again, Abraham wouldn't have understood that, but the culture where they were going to go into the nation of Israel after their time in slavery was going to be a very, very wicked one. So what I see here again is patience. God is working with Abraham in his doubt, and God is going to say, I'm going to give the Amorites about 400 years to get their act together. I'm going to give them 400 years to get their act together because they're doing some pretty wicked things, and I don't want you to have anything to do with them, Israel. And it's like, well, what happens to them? That's the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is an intense book. There's a lot of warfare in there because these Amorites are still living in there. And the book of Joshua chronicles their journey into the land and the wickedness that was there, the wars that happened. And like, and, but 400 some odd years, God was patiently waiting for these people to get their act together. So again, 
saying something about the nature of God. So, essentially what we can see from this, just to recap kind of this weird little scene here, is that the birds, they represent Egypt, right? They're going to be really symbolic of that. So, it says in verse 17, it says, When the sun set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. So, this is kind of like foreshadowing what would happen in Exodus, right? How God presented himself with the fire and the smoke. And that's 400 years later. So as they're looking back on this story, they're like, wow. Like God said this 400-some years ago, that he would be with us in this same way. And he revealed himself in this same way. And so the birds then in the story, they represent this attack, this harassment that would come on Israel and the covenant. Right? Which is the animal pieces. But then God would protect and deliver them, which is represented by Abram and the torch and the pot. So there's such a weird scene, but there's so much symbolism, like there often is, even in the book of Genesis. There's all this symbolism, like God's saying, look, I got you. I'm talking about what's ahead, but I want you to see, understand clearly, people after this. So Abraham doesn't get any of this. And I think that's really important to understand. Like, Abraham doesn't really clearly understand a lot of these things. And it's, again, what made his faith so strong. He didn't, he's like getting bad news, and he's got all these doubts, and he then has nothing in hand, and yet he's going to trust God. Because it ends, the story lands in verse 18, and it says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or Abram, saying, I give, so again, that unilateral covenant, I'm going to do this, this land to your offspring, from the book of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Well, what does that mean? What was he going to give him? So I wanted you to be able to see this kind of perspective-wise from Abraham's point of view. This little orange line here in the north is where he started with Lot. He travels south to Hebron, and uh, right there you can see the south side of that little brown area. So if Abram was able to look out and see if God's making him this promise down there at Hebron, more or less the brown area is what he could see. Not a very big area. Mediterranean to the left, Dead Sea to the right, Jordan Valley above it, and then the Sea of Galilee is north of that off of the screen. So a very little portion, probably from his viewpoint. Now, if you pan out, the area promised is this. So Abraham has been through this area, so certainly he's familiar with it, but he can't even see all of it, right? He can't even see the whole promise, one thing. Two, the land is not in his possession. Three, he doesn't even have children, and it doesn't seem he's got a way to have children. And yet, he trusts God. That's what's so powerful about his story. He totally had to trust God. He didn't understand all the symbolism that was happening with this little contractual agreement. He certainly didn't have anything in hand, and yet he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. Like, that's why the story is so powerful. So again, I don't know what your impossible is, but I'll circle back to that question. What happens to you when God calls you to that point, that place, when you need to trust him with the impossible? Because for Abraham, what happened to him is he believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Didn't have the answer. Didn't have a way out. Nothing in hand. So again, I'll put it back to you. I'll put it back to you. Will you trust God with your impossible? Will you trust God with your impossible? Whatever that might be, just like Abram, that was his impossible was the promise. But man, this is hard. This is a hard place. This is where the rubber meets the road for us to say, Lord, I know you can get me through this. I have no idea how. I don't even know if it'll be quick. Certainly it wasn't for Abram. But I know that you've got me. I know you've got a plan in this. And I'm just going to keep listening to you.
It's a hard place to live. But that's where our faith comes alive. That's where you grow in those moments when you really pay attention to what God's doing. So let me pray on that. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this guy, Abram, so imperfect uh, and so prone to, it seems, you know, go just back and forth. And I, I don't know, I just, I thank you for that example and your patience in this chapter with him, Lord. Um, I pray that more often than not, it seems like you're better to us than we deserve. And I just pray, God, again, you'd speak to us, person, make this personal, Lord. I'm just asking that for those here in the room, those watching, those listening, Jesus, that you're going to make this personal. The Holy Spirit, you're going to drive this into our lives and help us see what our impossible is. And give us the strength, give us the patience to trust you with it. And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, that's all we got. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.